Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, Culminators. Thanks for coming onto uh, our little space today. I'm going to be talking to a very interesting young woman who I had the privilege of finally meeting in person at CPAC a couple of weeks ago. Our eyes locked and she said, wow, that very old man looks familiar to me. And indeed, uh, we do know, we, we knew each other from social media, as you've heard me say so many times. Now we're, of course, the best of friends. Grace Riley, who is known uh, as Conservative Grace. Grace is, is a, a fascinating young person. She's a junior at Grove City College. Um, she does the Liberty Mail podcast. She's a Turning Point USA ambassador. Uh, Gen Z conservative activist with the goal of reaching her generation with conservative values and truth. That's astonishing to me. I want to find out from Grace how a seemingly normal uh, and intelligent young woman gets herself so deeply into activism at such an early stage in life and whether she thinks it was a good idea, give, you know, given what she's learned so far. Grace, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Did you have fun at CPAC? Was it I worth did. CPAC was, it was a good time. Um, yeah, we met at CPAC, which was great. I got to talk to a lot of people at CPAC and kind of see what they were thinking about the current political climate. So that was very interesting. Um, but overall, it was a good time. How many CPACs have you been to so far? This is my third CPAC. So you started going to CPAC as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And yes, as a teen's teenager, but... Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have been involved in political activism for starting at a very early age. Are your parents political? Um, my parents are conservative, but they're not necessarily political. I mean, they, they're not, they don't work in politics, nothing like that. They lean more conservative. But just to your first point, um, I started to become involved in politics when I was, I think I was 15. So I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and basically what, what part of the country are we talking about? Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Connecticut and growing up in my family, we would talk about important issues. So Eastern I or Western, Eastern or Western, Eastern Connecticut. Okay. So you grew up in a very blue area. Oh yeah. It was very, very blue. So I certainly did not, um, become a conservative out in my school or anything like that because that was predominantly left. So, okay, but but your parents, you were, you're were always people. Our kids joke that we're kind of like a our vacations were like social studies vacations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and my parents they they would always talk about important issues at the dinner table. Not necessarily anything very political when I was younger, but my family would always kind of engage in important conversations, which I was always interested in at a young age, even if I didn't necessarily understand what they were fully or you know, could fully talk about what I thought about them. But with that background, I started to do more of my own research. When I got into high school, I started to dive into things a lot more. 
um, and through that really became solidified in my conservative beliefs um, and the whys and why I thought everything that I did about conservatism, about politics, and about what was going on in the world. So finding that why on my own was the most important thing, I think. And from there, I started going to turning point conferences when I was younger, so in high school. And then from there, decided that I wanted to make a social media page and start talking more about these issues. And, you know, I continued to go to conferences um, and work in the movement. How about any friction? I'm assuming your parents encouraged mm -hmm. you and no problems. How about teachers? Yeah, so my parents supported me and they though made it very clear that I should understand and I do understand that by putting out my views online, they don't go away. So it was a decision I had to make that had to make that I had to in a sense fully commit to um, because you're right, teachers were not a fan of, of that. I was the president of the Young Republicans Club in high school and teachers were not necessarily in favor of that. Students were not um, I don't keep in touch with people from high school. They don't like me for just because I post my views. We've never had any personal problems, but people don't like outspoken conservatives, conservatives especially people in my generation um, that are on the left. They don't really want anything to do with me, though they've never you know, confronted me in person and asked me about anything I think, because I would love to have a conversation with any of my peers, but um, that is kind of what happened to me growing up. So it was difficult at first, but um, what I've learned from it is that, you know, speaking out about the things that I believe in and what I think about politics, about religion, about the world, speaking out about those things has been um, completely worth it. And if I've lost friends along the way, then I, I think that's fine because um, in a sense, it weeds people out of my life that aren't going aren't going to respect what I think anyway where so yeah well I mean what what you find and I've, cause I've had this discussion with a lot of people and it, it's happened in my life is too too is you haven't lost real friends mm -hmm. be, because it is absolutely possible to remain friends with someone whose political beliefs diverge from yours and and no, no reason you can't do that if they'll exactly let. exactly it completely is I one of my roommates right now is more on the left side and we're still friends. And it's, I have no issue with that. We're completely, I'm completely fine being friends with people that disagree with me, but the, tr the same hasn't been true on the other side. And in most cases, yes, it showed me who were not real friends, who just all of a sudden poofed away um, from being friends with me just because I'm a conservative. But you must've found that in high school, you weren't really having engagements with people who disagree with you, right? I mean. And I, I know that even, how different could it be for, for when I went to the high school during the Middle Ages? Most people don't really have a particularly well-developed understanding of political and um, policy issues mm -hmm. at that age. I mean, it's, I'm so, first of all, you told me you were president of the, of the Young Republicans Club. What high school has a Young Republicans Club? That's weird. Well, and some some do now, but to your point um, on people not having as you know fully as fully developed political um, ideas as they would when they were would be older, that's kind of exactly what happened. I mean, people that disagree with me kind of heard the talking points and knew what they should think. For example, on the issue of abortion, um, that's when people would get the most heated 
on that issue, they know that they're supposed to say, I'm pro-choice, you're hurting women. It's kind of those key talking points. And they knew that they were supposed to think that. So that's what I was confronted with. And to this point, even um, when black squares were going viral on social media during more of the Black Lives Matter things, that was a social media trend where you were supposed to do one thing. Um, and if you weren't doing that, people thought you were on the wrong side, if that makes sense. So it was, it was not necessarily, I was not necessarily confronted with people who were arguing points against me, but people who naturally um, identified themselves on the left because of what they were hearing in school, seeing in, on TV shows and culture um, and things like that. Right. I mean, it is, it's really sort of a, just a sort of overall sensibility that people are supposed to, are expected to have. It's like, mm -hmm. just, it's basically like just being in New York, just, lo yeah. just like just being in New York or being, or being in an ortho, uh, in a non-Orthodox synagogue. I mean, everyone here understands what's good and what's bad and who's bad. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't really examine those issues. Have you ever been confronted with this? It's actually a misquote the, the uh, supposedly by Churchill, right? If a man is not a socialist by the time he's 20, he has no heart. And if he's not a conservative by the time he's 40, he has no brain. The understanding that I always had, and again, apparently Churchill did not say that, um, um, but it's one of those things that's out there. And it's meant to get across the idea that sure, everyone knows that it is, that socialism is stupid. Mm -hmm. But if you have a heart, right? If you're a compassionate person and as young people presumably would be, at least you'll go through a stage where you'll go there. Did, has anyone ever tried to challenge you with, with, with that quote? Yeah, you know, no one's tried to challenge me, I think, because I've already been so outspoken. So with, but with that considered, I think a really interesting thing is that it is true that I, I believe it's 60% or something above that of my generation. So Generation Z supports socialism or would generation vote for socialism. Z, yeah. Z, Z, Z is in Z, Z. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, but yeah. So, which is what we said at the beginning, right? Yes. Yeah, so basically, a majority of my generation would support the socialist, support those ideas, or vote for a socialist. Which is interesting because, yes, as you said, socialism does not work. It's incompatible, um, you know, and it, it does not work, and it's not a system that works. So, with that considered, you'd wonder why do so many young people support this, especially since. Um, with more leftist policies, there are real impacts we're seeing now even with, I mean, if you look at gas, money, if you look at the tax rates, things like that, those are real issues that are impacting young people, even as they're, you know, starting to go off on their own. But I mean, I think to that one important thing to consider is that there have been a lot of studies done because most people would argue, okay, well, they're young now, so they're more on the left, but don't worry, when they grow up and get older, they'll become more conservative. But studies that are being done now are showing that that's not the case, even if, as far as conservatism goes and as far as religion goes, because uh, over a third of young Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated and far more are more likely to say that they're atheist or agnostic. And, and that's found by the Survey Center on American Life. But we know that religion is the foundation of morals, values and traditions. Um, and when you become separated from that, these young people are not growing up to become more religious or more conservative. It's a generational problem where they're staying religiously unaffiliated. They're staying 
more on the left. So kind of waiting for them to grow up and get older isn't going to be an effective solution. So you make a couple of really important points. And just one thing I, I, I would perhaps add to your point about socialism is dumb. So <laughs> why, you know, of course, most, most kids are dumb. Most young people are dumb. And in fact, we're living in a country where dumbness is becoming, a, you know, the, the prevailing mode. Um, but there's also, I think, you didn't, you didn't say it, but, but your point about the, the, the effects of socialist type policies says it, it's also not compassionate. It's a false compassion because a system that impoverishes people makes their lives harder and benefits those who are in power and already are the best off is not compassionate. It just making you feel good about yourself is not compassion. Um, and I think that actually does relate to your second point about religion, because the young people you're talking about who are overwhelmingly unaffiliated don't have any training in religious thought. So people will be very proud about being uh, atheists or agnostics, having never had a serious encounter with religious thought. Um, now that's something, of course, that's usually the responsibility of parents. And I think it's fair to say your parents' generation, which is my generation, have largely failed in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we fix that? I mean, this is a question that I've probably asked at least half of the guests on my, on my program, because like you, I believe that in, it is impossible to rebuild the institutional, moral, civic structures of this country without reference to some sort of religious revival. But if people don't believe, and given that evangelism as such is so discredited, um, certainly in the popular culture, how do how do we what do we do? What do you what do you think? Yeah, I think in order to decide what to do, we have to talk about why that happened and why is there such a disconnect between children and their parents. And I think a key factor in this are schools and the public school because if you think about it, parents send their kids away for I would assume forty ish hours a week to spend time with teachers um, and in the public school system. So parents go completely hands off. For and they send their kids away for you know a majority of their time in their developing years. And when you're sending kids to secular institutions that deny and have an opposition to religion and shy away from it in school, then that's where you're seeing this disconnect because younger people are spending all their time around secular things. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting thing to look at. And I think a solution there would be parents being more involved in their children's schooling and in raising them from young ages, homeschooling more and not, or supporting other private schools that are instilling more religious values. But personally, I think homeschooling is the best option for that to make sure the parents are the ones who are really raising their kids and instilling those values. Um, because parents should not trust that the schools are going to instill those values because they're not. 
Um, they're they're not. And in fact, to the extent that they're instilling any values at all, I mean, are, you might argue, well, if we're not going to permit prayer in school, we're not going to permit even the most benign reference to traditional religious mores, then let's be completely value neutral. But they're not. Their values are an aggressive secular humanism, which is inconsistent, obviously, with, with, with religious belief. Yeah, and when they're and when they are supporting that, when they are promoting that, they're putting religion on the back burner, which sends a message to the kids who are in school. When religion is like, oh, that's that's another thing. We don't talk about that in this educational institution, then that sends a message to the kids that oh, this is just a thing some people do, but it's not really education or important or anything that they should, you know, prioritize and consider in their learning. So that sends that message to younger kids as well. And I also think the devices that we have every day, kids are given now, I mean, you can walk into a restaurant now and see a parent hand their three-year-old a phone just so that they'll be quiet and behave. When you have that type of culture and parenting that's now happening more and more, when you have uh, young kids unsupervised on electronics, they're going to be finding all sorts of things that are controlling and forming them that the parent is not, you know, does not have a handover. So I think having electronics everywhere where younger kids growing up have free reign on that. And for high schoolers and college aged students, I mean, think about all the TV shows that are out there now and social media and the effects that that have. Most things that come out of Hollywood are woke and, you know, have messaging that's socially liberal and otherwise. So when people are constantly watching those things as well and going to the secular schools, I think that those looking at those areas is really important. Well, I want to suggest also that these devices, besides being windows and doors to content that is absolutely inconsistent with the kind of values that you and I share, I think. They also train, and it's, and it's horrible what you, what you described, that very young children are, are you know, being you know, given this, this form of modern-day rattle. They teach a child something that most of us have already been ruined by, which is the inability to exist in the moment with the people that we're with in the place where we're at. And, you know, this is one of the greatest challenges of modernity, uh, you know, certainly in the West, where everyone has a smartphone. Um, in fact, three of my four children don't, the youngest of whom is 24, do not have smartphones. They, they're, they're rabbinical students. Um, and, and the one who does have one is also a rabbinical student in an environment where he has to interact with more with it kind of people. But it is just, it's just such a distraction and to teach that to children very early on. I mean, do you think there's any extent to, to which also, you know, there's such a lack of rigor in, in education in general today. And religion makes demands of people that is just so inconsistent with the slacker mentality that so dominates American life today. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And what it, you know, causes me to think of is the whole culture of self-love. So our, our secular culture tells us we are the most important entity, that we're our own gods, that anything we feel and want is justified and good and moral, 
that if I want to wake up and do one thing that may be considered sin, for example, I should do it because it's, you know, it's, it's all about me. So when you're teaching people that. And it's self-fulfillment. And, and, yes. and, plus, and plus it's voluntary and it's not, you're not in any way coercing anyone else. And it's instant gratification, self-fulfillment. So when, when you're kind of carrying that idea where people are, you know, thinking that they're basically their own God, yes, that makes sense that then when they're confronted with, you know, um, a higher calling to give up those things and to, you know, not look to themselves for fulfillment, but to look to God for fulfillment and to rely on him and trust in him and to follow him and serve him. Um, I think that, yeah, there is correlation there, um, which, which is really quite interesting. And you did, you made a great point. So at CPAC, we, we talked a bit and you made a great point about one of the biggest issues that America is facing is the detachment from traditional values um, and, you know, even you know, kids not respecting their parents. And I think that, again, answers all these questions as well. Well, you know, my friend Yoram Hazoni uh, has written a couple of books on, na on nationalism as a conservative value uh, and, and, and as a, a very deserving focus of of, of political uh, activism. And one of the things he says is that regardless of what one's religion is, if you if there's a tradition in your family connected to a certain tradition, it's entitled to at least a presumption that that, tra that, that tradition is entitled to a presumption of being something worthwhile. And that idea of transmitted values on the family level and on the national and cultural level is really, not only is it gone from American culture, it's actually considered to be oppressive. It, it's that's it's the whole white, you know, white um, supremacy and, and, you know, toxic masculinity. Yeah. I mean, that's completely the point. I, I mean, the nuclear family is important. And I would argue that along with religion are the cornerstones of society. Having a family and having religion are the foundations um, that branch out to everything else. So now we're looking at a broken family um, system in large part. So that certainly is another factor. But are you, as, as someone who, I mean, you're, you're in this, the kind of program you're in now, okay, between majoring in media communication well there was a there was such things as a media major in you know in my time but you're at grove which is good because you're in an environment where people are able to support each other in being believers and in trying to improve themselves morally and spiritually which is critical which is critical it's extremely difficult to do this in an environment where people are scoffing at you which is 98 percent of colleges right you're part of the Institute for Faith and Freedom. First of all, tell me about what what that is. The part of it's a Grove College program. Yeah, so the Institute for Faith and Freedom is a think tank at Grove City College, and it's a basically a partnership between students and faculty. Um, there are student fellows, so I'm a student fellow, and with the institute, that's where I host the podcast, Liberty Mail. So it's with the institute, and it's a partnership where students can either be marketing feather fellows or they can be research fellows where they research for professors on certain issues. But definitely, as you're saying- Is it um, like a multidisciplinary, is that the idea? Is, is it brings 
faculty from different areas of study to address yes. these issues? Uh -huh. Yes, so it, it does. It engages, you know, any faculty that are either writing books or that is relevant. So it's not purely political science. They're predominantly, other than political science, it's mostly, um, it's mostly more uh, economics professors. So it is generally based in that, but it is looking at politics and faith. Um, so from that lens, and it is a really, it's really great. And also the school, I'm very fortunate to be here because as you said, 98% probably of college campuses are the complete opposite. And that's part of the problem and all the, all the things that we've been discussing um, this whole time. And I'm very fortunate to be in a place that will help me to grow and not hold me back. But the same would not be true when I walk off of this campus into the real world or to other college campuses, people are not as friendly or um, supportive. So even before you walk off though, your, does any part of your work with the Institute involve outreach? In other words, I, I know certainly Turning Point, you guys are trying to get across messages to people who don't see the things we see them at this point. Um, what do you do to make headway with people who are your age and who don't necessarily, who weren't as precocious in terms of thinking about these things and not as motivated, but gosh, somehow you've gotten them to listen first. How do you get them to listen? How do you get them to even yeah. come and hear you? That's a great point. So at the school, with, through the podcast, we try to do that. And also there are, we have events. So we'll have a, a conference coming up that's called titled Post-Row America. So it will be about abortion. But as far as um, figuring out how to get my peers to listen to me, that's an ongoing challenge. Uh, I would say every day, whether that be on social media or um, on the podcast or in my everyday life, because a lot of people don't want to hear it in a sense. And so with that considered, I think the best thing to do is to, you know, be to be respectful and humble when making different points, because going and making fun of the other side is not an effective way to really change their mind if that's your goal. So one of my goals always is to be welcoming and, and open to people while I'm trying to, you know, promote my points. I, I try not to negatively bash the other side when I don't need to in a sense, to try to welcome my peers in so that hopefully something I put out or something I say can resonate um, and maybe pique some interest. So I think as far as personally, that's what I try to do. But obviously, there are a lot of different tactics people use. Um, and but, but with that considered, uh, yes, be nice, but also don't stand firm in the truth and don't waver on that just to try to, you know, bring people onto your side. I think standing firm is a really important thing, which I do. I do my best not to waver from anything I think. So um, that's why maybe sometimes people don't listen, but the goal always is to be open to, to have other people be open to listen. But that is hard because conversations these days, um, people aren't as conversational as they used to be and they can't have a real debate. So it seems that way, certainly at places like Stanford Law School, where the students oh, yeah. pres presumptively should be the best at it. I mean, I wanted so badly to go to Stanford Law School. But I did so badly in college that I wasn't I wasn't allowed to. Mm -hmm. But you know, in those days, it was such an elite place. And I made a joke on Twitter today because my, my wife went there. I couldn't get in. Uh, she married down. Um, <laughs> but it it really has been. But so let me ask you, kind of, 
if so much of what you believe is premised on a traditional notion of morality and conduct that is not shared by the people that you're trying to convince, do you have to get them into that box first to have the conversation? Or is there a way for you to talk to them without requiring them to accept, even for argument's sake, that there's a God and that he has a plan for us and that the Bible is truth, any of those things? Yeah, I, I would say that yes to both. I think, um, first of all, start the foundation of you know, religion, I think, is the best starting point if you really want to um, help a person. I think that's the best starting point. But also, there's a way, I think truth is on our side. So there's a way to talk about things in scientific terms or in terms that maybe people would resonate more with that will still be effective in convincing them and then maybe leading to those more important values. For example, with abortion, you can talk about abortion um, with a lot of different arguments, but the, the argument is purely scientific. Some, you can look at it as religious that, you know, life begins at conception. That's a religious belief, but also science backs that up, that life begins at conception. That's a scientific argument and a religious argument. So the truth is, the truth is on our side, backed up by science. So I think you can go about things in that way, where even someone that would not call themselves religious um, I mean, they people that don't call themselves religious usually love science. So looking at it from that scientific perspective helps. But then again, I think bringing, for example, in the abortion topic, bringing that back to the question of, well, when does life begin? What is the value of human life? That's where the debate gets a little more interesting if you're talking to someone who's not a believer, because, you know, when do they think life begins and where do they derive their answer for that because everyone derives it from somewhere everyone is worshiping something finding their morals somewhere whether that whether they call that um, religion or not I mean people can religiously be worshiping false idols in a sense people can you know be serving a secular culture um, so you know kind of putting a nail on well, what do you think the value of life is starting at the most basic root question and working out because a lot of these people probably haven't even been confronted with that and haven't right. even you know heard that haven't even thought about it so maybe yeah no you're 100 right there. they've never really thought in thought into it and I, and I don't mean that to insult on the on the off chance that someone who, who would share those beliefs is listening to this I'm not saying I'm saying that you like everyone like me and like grace we thought about until, it for at some point until you start thinking about it you're not going to think about it this is a, a question that you may never have thought about either. <laughs> and it might, you might not have a great answer for it. And it might be such a bad question that we'll take, we <laughs> won't even use it. But do you find it in having these discussions more of a challenge to address the collectivist socialist point of view or the libertarian point of view? Hmm. That's very interesting. Because my, you know, while you think about it, my observation is that there's a very, very strong, and I got in trouble with one of my friends, one of my academic friends on Twitter when I offhandedly mentioned libertarianism. But I think libertarianism has been very corrosive to the intellectual worldview of, because, because I, think, I think that some of the more intelligent students uh, gravitate to libertarianism 
because there are some really compelling arguments, including that government makes just about everything worse rather than better, and that government is so readily abused and so rife with corruption. But also libertarian, like so many modern religions, demands so little of you personally. Yeah. I, and I think I have thought about, you know, this in different ways. I think it is difficult to kind of confront the libertarian argument, but also I would have the same, I would have the same argument to probably more of a libertarian side and to more of the collectivist side, because what they what they're kind of agreeing on in a sense they're not acknowledging that god or the moral power they're not looking to that as much they're kind of on either side of that so for me i think that's that's kind of a route um that i would go back to that that and that would be the difficult part of talking either side i think um amongst libertarians yeah very interesting conversations to be had there um but I, I do think I do think that's difficult. I think that it is more difficult to talk to more of the collectivist left because of, in a sense, the defiance of wanting to believe, wanting to agree with anything, or um, more of the defiance of if I if they know that, for example, I'm a Christian, that makes them flee way further away and not want to listen to anything I say, and that makes them say, "Well, you're only arguing this because." you're a Christian and we disagree with that. So you're wrong in everything. So I think, I think it's a little more difficult to have a debate on this with them in a sense, but to both ends. You know, I think you're right because the libertarians almost inevitably get there by th going back to our comments of a couple of minutes ago, by thinking about these issues. And they are more open to thinking about those deeper roots of the issues where I, I would argue that's not the same case for people that are more collectivist, socialist left. And ironically, they don't, they've never really experienced what collectivism really does require of them in a truly collectivist environment. Yes, but they can look at where it's failed everywhere else, every time throughout history. So but that was not real socialism. Come on, know. Grace. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't real when it's been tried that many times uh, where communism has been the re responsible for the death of 100 million people worldwide. I mean, that wasn't real, right? It, it, there's... Actually, it's I'll tell you something amazing. I, I, I had a very friendly conversation with um, an extended member of my family who I have not been in contact with for a very, very long time. And he's a left-wing professor at a, at a state university teaching political science. And we were talking about an, a, one of my relatives and he, said, and he said, I haven't been able to talk to him for a long time because he became some kind of Maoist and he's attacking me from the left. And I thought of this guy that I was talking to, and it, that he's who I had in mind when I was talking about how you can definitely have cordial relations with someone who is not on the same page as you uh, religiously, um, uh, politically. But there's a point at which, again, if you're going to become a Maoist and stand, stand for the well, proposition, which is where which is where we're heading. Yeah, and the left is going further and further to the left. I mean, even for for so many college students to be openly communist and socialist is, you know, 
a lot different than if they just were a liberal Democrat, more classically liberal. That's a, it's a lot different. It's a lot further to the left. And that's where even the mainstream political talk is going. I mean, we have socialist, openly socialist candidates running. So with the left shifting further to the left, that is getting more difficult. Although I would t- I would suggest that these college students are essentially the uh, 2023 version of the punks of my generation who weren't, who were just rebelling. And what's the most offensive thing I can say to shock my parents and shock my teachers, at, you know? Mm. Oh yeah, you know, I'm a shining path uh, enthusiast. Yeah, and I, I do think- I'm in favor of Che. Are you kidding? The guy was the most progressive murderer in the world. He, he also, people. you know, you know what he was against? Uh, Homosexuals. Every, yes. Yeah, he I mean, was against he, he everything the, the LGBTQ movement is. He was against and yeah, slaughtering people. One more question for before, and I want to make sure before we get off that you tell people where to find your podcast. Um, but first, we, you talk about homeschooling. You talk about the importance of the family. Here you are in this. Again, kind of precocious career, doing great, getting on, you know, famous TV shows and less famous podcasts. And then with God's help, you're going to be married in the not too distant future and you're going to start having children. Are you prepared to put aside your career to stay home and school them or or to or or, or to take a, a, you know, to reduce your your disposable income so you can send them to private school? Yes. Um, I would say absolutely, and I'm excited to. I think, to me, the most important thing is family and that I will have a family and have kids. And as a mother, I I believe it's my duty to raise them and to instill um, Christian values in them. So I'm excited to homeschool them. And, you know, with God's help, I'll have the opportunity and ability to do that uh, because I really do think it's so important. And I think that, you know, how we're raising our kids is really the root to a lot of these other problems. So I'm excited to do that. And just everything else, I think that we do have an opportunity just to end on a more optimistic note. We have an opportunity to reach all these college students and young people that are more on the left and more religiously unaffiliated. That's a great opportunity for us to, you know, talk to them and try our best to share the truth with them. I trust that you will as well. And, 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 you know, also we're living in a time when you can do more from home when the and that's my goal i yeah that's my goal i don't i don't think that i'll have to give up what i'm doing in my career to homeschool my kids i think i can do both and there are ways that i can homeschool my kids and now luckily we talked about the negatives of all the digital stuff but the positive is i can still keep doing things like this um and hopefully have my own show in the future a little Um, bit of light dispels a great deal of darkness mm -hmm. so every one of those children that you raise into the world with with who can share that light, the light from you, Grace, makes a gigantic difference. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a real delight to hear this from you. These are, these are not sacrifices. These are actually investments in the, in the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us where the Liberty Mail podcast can be found. Is it on all all the usual platforms? Yes. You can find the Liberty Mail podcast on all usual platforms and you can find more of my work at Conservative Grace on Instagram, and you can find me at Conserve Grace on Twitter um, and also on Getter. I recommend that everyone make an investment in following Conservative Grace now because there's a lot more to come from her. Thank you very much. much for joining me. 
and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much for having me. So long. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day. Hey.